All right, we are back. We've got a lot of political stuff and economic stuff and disturbing stuff to talk about. But I don't really want to. I don't want to start with politics. Let's, let's just take a little diversion, shall we, Mr. McMillan? Yes. All right. Let's talk about genetic modification. I did not uh, ask anyone when I was down in Mexico about the issue of um, GMO corn, which the Mexican government is determined to try and keep out. Ninety percent of the corn grown in the United States is, unfortunately, genetically modified. I guess Monsanto and others inserted a gene into the corn that we grow that makes it resistant to herbicide, glyphosate, Roundup. So they plant the corn, spray it with glyphosate, kill all the weeds, then leave the corn intact, and then harvest the grain. It's very important for the future of civilization that we keep genetically modified grain out of Mexico and other areas where wild varieties still exist. Maybe wild isn't exactly the right word, but certain certain long-planted heirloom varieties of corn still exist. And unfortunately, not only is Monsanto not being called on the carpet for the GMO corn that is uh, bound to cause trouble down the road, as the genes that protect the corn leak out into other related plants, which it's going to at some point. I think we need at this point to, to grab some people that we had on this program like 15 years ago to talk about, unfortunately, this exact same topic. The newspapers, like the New York Times, keep reporting that, well, all the studies seem to show that you know, GMO corn is safe to eat, which is not the issue. But uh, we're not going to grind up that material into tortillas for today's show. Instead, I want to talk about the old-fashioned method of genetically modifying organisms by crossbreeding. We've talked on this show about how it is certain dog breeds have become uh, altered to suit human fancy, have flat faces and all sorts of cute features, features that humans think is cute that, that are, are, are problematic for the animals. Now, I know bulldogs are high on the list of, of dogs that have genetic issues. I don't know specifically whether the French bulldog is, is leading the pack in this area, but I do know that the French bulldog is leading the pack in becoming, at this point, the top U.S dog breed dethroning the labrador retriever which has had a 31 year run at the top of the list now i'm not a veterinarian but i do know some people that are and i think i'm going to try and reach out to them to to go through this in a little bit of detail i mean how how bad is it that i know i understand a lot of these dog breeds have to be bred by cesarean section because they just are their pelvises are not capable of plopping out puppies I see there's a quote in, in the reporting on this from the French Bulldog Club of America. Their spokesperson, Patty Sosa, said they're comical, friendly, loving little dogs. City friendly, with modest grooming exercise needs, they offer a lot in a small package. It's been a dizzying rise to the top. Apparently, this breed wasn't even in the top 75 as recently as just 25 years ago. The breed's popularity is certainly sharpening the debate over whether there's anything healthy about propagating dogs that are prone to breathing, spinal, eye, and skin conditions. We just speculate that uh, some of the popularity of the breed may have been stymied a couple decades ago when there was an anti-French hysteria in America in the wake of the French looking at our efforts to have a war in Iraq as a really stupid activity. This caused right-wingers in the U.S. Congress to rename the French fries served in the congressional cafeteria as Liberty Fries. But in truth, we don't know that anybody was pushing for the Liberty Bulldog back then. In case you're wondering what the least popular dog breed is, and, and I am, 
<laughs> the article I have hints that it is the rarely owned English foxhound. Now, I thought the Jack Russell Terrier was, a fo- was the foxhound. I do know that a couple decades ago, my nephew owned one, and I certainly understand why it is an unpopular breed. Yeah, I guess that the English dog breeders discovered that if you want to chase foxes, it's really good to have a dog that has attention deficit disorder. And while political issues still loom before me, I want to take a brief, and I do mean brief, detour into the subject of the Oscars. Year after year after year, Radio Parallax tends to pay no attention whatsoever to the Oscars. But unfortunately, we're not going to be able to keep that record intact because yours truly did witness the other night the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It did really well on Oscar night. Got the Best Picture Award, got the Best uh, Actress Award, or I guess what they're called, Best Lead Female, I don't know. And the directors also won. I think both supporting actor-actresses came from the movie, one of which I think is Jamie Lee Curtis. Anyway... I'm sorry to report that I watched this movie in its entirety. And I have no reservations whatsoever about pronouncing it the worst movie I have ever seen. I make a point to avoid bad movies. Well, actually, that's not quite true. If a movie's truly bad enough, I sometimes do seek it out. Witness the popularity of Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, let's face it, is so tremendously bad that it's very entertaining. But movies with disgusting themes, you know, slasher films and the like, I I make a point to, you know, give a miss to them. But, you know, this movie came well recommended. Well, in the midst of watching it, I received a phone call from a regular Radio Parallax contributor. I explained what I was doing, and he said, oh, I've been meaning to see that. I said, hold the phone. And and I have to confess, seeing that this sort of entertainment was what the public is going for, these days was something I found deeply depressing. It's a cartoon. It it bends over backwards to be politically correct. No, I don't don't mean literally a cartoon, Mr. McMillan. Although a great deal of the real-life action you see in this movie, which has fight scene after fight scene after fight scene, a la The Matrix or Jackie Chan or I guess those Marvel comic movies that they're making... And no, Mr. Miller, I did not see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but I understand that the actress uh, that won the Oscar was in both. And watching all these people flying through the air in this movie last night reminded me of what, what comic George Wallace had to say in the wake of movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was, when did Chinese people learn how to fly? I was watching this movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and they're flying all over the place. And, and, and numerous scenes were, were just reminiscent of, you know, what happens to Wiley Coyote in the Roadrunner series. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy the Roadrunner. But although I'm, I'm inclined to go on about this a little bit, I'm, I'm going to reserve this because I'm going I'm to get some other ammo together from some other critics. In fact, let me do that right now. Lest you think I'm a data outlier... Dear listener, I would like to quote from the Los Angeles Times movie critic Justin Chang, who said, I'm still trying to see the lasting greatness that so many others see in this admirably ambitious, wildly idiosyncratic movie. Yes, it's undeniably significant that a movie about a dysfunctional Chinese-American family has one best picture, and the film's playful use of the concept of multiverse 
captures something of the social fragmentation and narrative oversaturation of the internet age and its attendant feelings of apathy and despair. But beneath its veneer of impish, form-busting radicalism, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert's adventure comedy is as broadly sentimental and epically self-important as any prior movie engineered to be Oscar bait. And, and I, would, I would be the first to admit, it is wildly idiosyncratic, but I have some doubts about some of the idiosyncrasies that appear in the film. And, and if, for those of you who still intend to see it, uh, spoiler alert, you want to turn down the sound for the next 15 seconds. I personally, among the myriad fight scenes, was taken by the scene in which the two protagonists fighting the lead actress both engage in dramatic leaps through the air as both have prominent objects, shall we say, protruding out their rectums. A- anyway, to all of that, words, words simply fail. We brought up the issue in the past of whether, you know, your phone is listening to what you're saying. And uh, jury may still be out on that, but after my friend called and I told him I thought this was the worst movie, I was still watching it, but it was up to then the worst movie I'd ever seen and it didn't get any better by the end. The news feed on my phone then served up what Ebert and Siskel thought was the worst movie ever. Coincidence? I suspect not. Anyway, let's turn out of bad movies into bad politics. But in another item of what has to be considered dark comedy, we have what Dana Milbank was commenting on in the Washington Post about Kevin McCarthy. To quote from the piece, If ignorance is bliss, Kevin McCarthy must be in nirvana. Ask the House Speaker about any nutty act or comment involving Donald Trump or his MAGA House members, and rest assured McCarthy hasn't read it, seen it, or heard about it. How did he view Trump's phone call demanding that Georgia Secretary of State find, in quotes, enough votes to change the 2020 election results? Quoth McCarthy, I have to hear it first. What about the explosive texts and emails revealed in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox Fox News showing the network's primetime host knew they were airing lies about a stolen election? McCarthy, I I didn't see all that. And last week, after he gave Tucker Carlson exclusive access to security footage of the January 6th insurrection, the Fox News demagogue claimed that the January 6th mob was mostly peaceful. McCarthy, Shrugged off the line and said, I, I didn't see what was aired. Said Dana Milbank, the spineless McCarthy has obviously concluded the only way to preserve his own power is to support Fox News in its sabotage of this country. I had to laugh at the cartoon that was circulated last week. A couple of guys, uh, good old boy types, one of them wearing an, actually a MAGA hat sitting at, the, at a counter having a beer. First one says, so what if Fox News lies to us? Next panel. The mainstream media lies, too. His buddy asks him, who told you that? Pause. Fox News. Actually, I guess that's a little bit unfair, because in this case, we kind of tend to agree a little bit with the guy wearing the MAGA hat. The mainstream media does lie to us, too. You have to dig a little bit to figure out what the hell the real story is. In fact, you got to dig a lot, and you still may not get to the bottom of it. But the point is, dear listener, we all need to try. Now, what Trump had to say at at CPAC uh, got some publicity, maybe not all that it deserves. The Conservative Political Action Conference, which took place last week, usually gives, uh, you know, the conservatives their opportunity to vent, and Donald Trump didn't miss that opportunity. 
He spoke for something like 90 minutes and said things like, I am your warrior. I am your justice. I am your retribution. In his speech, Trump said the U.S. is becoming a crime-ridden, filthy, communist nightmare and cast himself as the Republican's sole hope in an epic battle against sinister forces. He vowed not to drop out of the race, even if he's indicted in any of the numerous investigations he faces, and refused to say whether he'll sign a pledge to back the GOP nominee if he loses the primary. He said, these are probably people that I wouldn't be very happy about endorsing. Writing in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Will Bunch said Trump's speech was filled with echoes of the very worst movements that modern humankind has produced. The promise to avenge his followers' humiliation by sinister forces comes straight from the playbooks of Mussolini and Hitler. Trumpism can be fairly called the F-word, fascism. He even vowed to send National Guard troops into cities to lock up criminals and and restore order. This CPAC was full of flashing sirens for the American democracy. Of course, I'm disturbed by what someone else wrote in the Washington Post, Henry Olson, talking about Trump's excesses and said he sounded desperate, made bizarre promises like building futuristic, quote, freedom cities, unquote, on federal land and making America the leader in developing flying cars, to which he added, that will give DeSantis a lot of targets to shoot at, to which I say, DeSantis, how much better off are we with Ron DeSantis versus Donald J. Trump? That's something I, I hope we don't get to find out. Writing in the bulwark, Joe Walsh said, still, Trump remains the GOP's clear front runner, and Trump's devotees who thronged CPAC are not a loony far-right fringe of the GOP. They are the party, and they couldn't care less if he ended his first term with an attempted coup. If it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now. The voting base of one of our two major political parties is completely radicalized. And writing about these troublesome possibilities, Adrian LaFrance in The Atlantic has an article on how America is facing a type of extremist violence it does not know how to stop. It's a long piece. I highly recommend it. I just want to quote a few paragraphs from the piece, which quoted Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota, who told the author last January that she thought back to when she was standing at Joe Biden's inauguration. This is two weeks after the attempted insurrection. At the time, as Democrats and most Republicans came together for a peaceful transfer of power, she felt as though a violent eruption in American history might be ending. But Klobuchar now says she was naive to think that Republicans would break with Trump and restore the party's democratic values. We have Donald Trump and his shadow is looming over everything, she said. This past February, Biden sought to dispel that shadow as he stood before the U.S. Congress to deliver a State of the Union address. There is no place for political violence in America, he said, and we must give hate and extremism in any form no safe harbor. Biden's speech was punctuated by jeers and name-calling by Republicans. There's another piece I need to quote from in the future, but not today. piece in the L.A. Times by staff writer Sarah D. Wire asking if the feds are ignoring Trump's allies' multi-state effort to access election systems. Experts are raising alarms for 2024. All right, before we leave this topic, I do want to note, in case you you didn't hear, dear listener, what exactly Tucker Carlson had to say in some of those emails that turned up in the Dominion lawsuit. 
Apparently, at some point, uh, Carlson shared his candid feelings about Trump, saying, I hate him passionately, calling his presidency a disaster to which there isn't really an upside. That's in private. As the cameras rolled, Carlson took the wildly pro-Trump stance that informs his current position, which is to recast the January 6th attempted coup as a peaceful protest. Writing in the New Republic, Alex Shepard said Carlson wasn't always like this. He began his career as an affable, preppy, right-of-center, beltway journalist with a vocal distaste for phonies, like Bill O'Reilly, whom he replaced, who Tucker described in a 2003 book as having a fake shtick as an indignant everyman. But I guess I have to editorialize and say, I guess he really liked that shtick of being an indignant everyman. Said Alex Shepard, after three of Carlson's TV shows on different networks were canceled and his career was tanking, he realized that hate-mongering is where the money is in the conservative media. All right, as much as we have a distaste for Governor Ron DeSantis, he's getting a lot of flack right now for his leading the charge against the woke. A friend posted on social media that he was proud to be considered woke and was one of many sending around memes that were referring to a woke as, you know, as idealistic and positive way of looking at things, which, on the one hand, it can be. So it might be wise to uh, explore what it is we're talking about and try and distinguish uh, the good side of woke from maybe the less good side. Having a lot of trouble defining it, and more than one person has referred to Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's definition of pornography back in 1964, to which he could only say, well... I know it when I see it. Noah Rothman writing in the National Review, and it's not often we go along with things that appear in the National Review, said, Voters may be conflicted on the exact definition of woke, but they're smart enough to know it when they see it. It means believing that racial and gender identities define us, and that systemic injustice can only be addressed with otherworldly speech codes, wealth redistribution, and programs of re-education. Wokeness is revolutionary, and when its meaning is made specific and concrete, most voters reject the term. On the other side, Matt Lewis, writing in the Daily Beast, said, in recent polls, most Americans oppose the use of gender-neutral pronouns and treatment of trans teens with puberty blockers and hormones. A majority blames woke politicians for the increase in crime, which is, I have to say, BS. And the truth is, a majority is not comfortable with the aggressive anti-woke policies of politicians like Ron DeSantis. And there's no denying that woke has developed into another vaguely defined conservative political insult, said Joe Garofoli in the San Francisco Chronicle. It's like other perennial invocations of, quote, San Francisco values, unquote, and socialist, quote, unquote, or how liberal, quote, unquote, was demonized when Bill Clinton was president, or how Republican President George H.W. Bush railed on his Democratic opponent Michael Dukakis for being a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Anyway, my feeling uh, with my friend who was writing on the social media was that if Ron DeSantis uh, takes it upon himself to write (laughs) a piece condemning the Burmese pythons in the Everglades, that itself is not going to make me, you know, pro-snake. And in the general area of woke, we have an article in The Atlantic by George Packer, which I think I need to quote from. It was titled, The Moral Case Against Euphemism. Packer said, banning words won't make the world more just. 
And he goes on over a couple pages to explain why it is a lot of these euphemisms we're currently using to describe things are, are so general and vague that they are robbing the language of accuracy. To quote from the piece, imprecise language is less likely to offend. Good writing, vivid imagery, strong statements will hurt because it's bound to convey painful truths. Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers is a nonfiction masterpiece that tells the story of Mumbai slum dwellers with the intimacy of a novel. The book was published in 2012 before the new language emerged. To quote from the piece, The one leg's given name was Sita. She had fair skin, usually an asset. But the runt leg had smacked down her bride price. Her Hindu parents had taken the single offer they'd got. Poor, unattractive, hardworking Muslim. Old. Quote, half dead, unquote. But who else wanted her, as her mother had once said with a frown? Said Packer, translated into equity language, this passage might read, Sita was a person living with a disability because she lived in a system that centered whiteness while producing inequalities among racial and ethnic groups. Her physical appearance conferred an unearned set of privileges and benefits, but her disability lowered her status to potential partners. Her parents, who were Hindu persons, accepted a marriage proposal from a member of the community with limited financial resources, a person whose physical appearance was defined as being different from the traits of the dominant group, and resulted in his being set apart for unequal treatment. A person who was considered in the dominant discourse to be hardworking, a Muslim person, an older person. In referring to him, Sita's mother used language that is considered harmful by representatives of historically marginalized communities. Well, he's got a point. Backer said, equity language fails at what it claims to do. This translation doesn't create more empathy for Sita and her struggles, just the opposite. It alienates Sita from the readers, placing her at a great distance. A heavy fog of jargon rolls in and hides all that Boo's short burst of prose makes clear with true understanding and true empathy. Now, it may be unfair to, to label what we're talking about here as uh, woke attitudes, but I don't know that it's, that's, that's wrong. Anyway, in the few minutes we have left, let's take our critical eye off of woke-type issues and instead focus it in on libertarians, shall we? It's no secret that a lot of tech titans in Silicon Valley tend to adopt a libertarian perspective. They're quite, quite radical about it sometimes. Now, a lot of folks are worried since 2008 that America's gotten back into its bad habits and we could face some banking crises again, and we may be perched on the edge of some of that right now. As you're no doubt aware, dear listener, the second largest bank failure in history took place last week, or maybe it was the week before, I don't know, recently, with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The federal government has, has had to jump in, and it has done so, to basically assure all of the depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank that their money is safe, not just the $250,000 limit that's customary for federally insured deposits, but the whole schmear. The Fed is also throwing money at First Republic, or, or convincing others to do so at any rate. Money, money is being tossed to keep banks solvent that are looking a little shaky. Now, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, well, it, it had customers that were mostly uh, startups, which deposited loads of cash into the bank because investors kept getting, giving them truckloads full of cash. 
and it was pretty much the bank of Silicon Valley venture capitalists. But uh, flush with cash, needing to put it somewhere, they apparently uh, bought a lot of uh, T-bills, which decrease in value as interest rates go up. And by God, the hypocrisy in all of this has really attracted the attention of, you know, at the very least, the writers for late-night comics. Quoting from Carolyn Sade's piece in the San Francisco Chronicle, observers from late-night TV host Seth Meyers to Fox News rushed to comment. Wasn't this a shining example of hypocrisy? Didn't it validate the old saw about socialism for the rich, capitalism for the rest? The piece quoted tweets from author Hunter Walker saying, It's incredible how many members of the incredibly wealthy and supposedly self-reliant entrepreneurial set have spent the last 24 hours begging for government bailouts for their friends. Adding, seeing billionaires beg is just a stunning level of chutzpah. Peace also quoted Barry Ridholtz, a columnist and founder of an investment advisory firm, as saying, Just as there are no atheists in the foxholes, there are no libertarians during financial crises. And Paul Sappho, a longtime Silicon Valley forecaster, agreed that the hypocrisy was flagrant, saying it's irresistible to poke fun at the Silicon Valley gas bags. This is a reminder that the same laws of gravity apply to Silicon Valley as everywhere else. He and others have been highly critical of Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal and Palantir, who may have been the first to pull massive amounts of money from SVB and urge companies backed by his venture capitalist firm, Founders Fund, to do likewise. That's according to Bloomberg. Said Sappho, he was an independent libertarian until the chips were down. Then all of a sudden, he became a socialist. And in another telling indication of the two-facedness in Silicon Valley, the CEO Silicon Valley Bank lobbied hard to reduce government regulations of banks that had less than $250 billion in assets. He testified before Congress that they shouldn't have to submit distress testing by the Federal Reserve, nor have to keep certain levels of cash reserves. Unless the government backed off, Greg Baker testified to Congress back in 2015, SVB and other mid-sized banks will face significant burdens that inherently and unnecessarily will reduce our ability to provide the banking services our clients need. And President Donald Trump approved the looser bank regulations in 2018. And the article points out that uh, there's quite a disconnect between espousing libertarian values and maintaining huge lobbyist firms in Washington, D.C. and Sacramento, as many of these tech behemoths do. Said one observer, one of the many hypocrisies is that they all see themselves as rugged individuals, but they're all just pack animals. Yes, and apparently the, the head of the bank managed to unload about $3.5 million worth of uh, assets of his own before things took a tumble. All right, and in closing, we're going to try and find a good news item to close shows with. We have the following. New Scientist magazine notes that a startup has begun planting fungi collected from healthy forests at a tree plantation in Georgia. The effort to rewild the soil microbiome may help grow trees that store more carbon. Fungi and other microbes in soil are important factors for tree growth and health. Many species of mycorrhizal fungi, for example, have evolved to form a symbiotic partnership with certain trees, helping roots access nutrients in exchange for hydrocarbons produced by the trees. Well, this is an idea that could work in theory, and it turns out in practice as they're testing this out, they have found a range of effects from inoculating the soil 
which range from small reductions in biomass to more than a 700% increase. On the average, the plant biomass increased 64%. If you need to get CO2 out of the air and back in the soil, this might be a good way to do it. Very encouraging. Trees swaying in the summer breeze Showing off their silver leaves as we walked by that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, whose favorite holiday, not coincidentally, is Arbor Day. Isn't everybody's? You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you again next week. Sweet, sleepy warmth of summer nights, gazing at the distance.